0: This is On Location, I'm Tim Leitner. This week's episode of On Location comes to you from Virginia and North Carolina. But first, On Location is produced by the NCA Communications Committee with special production assistance from Joe Manlin and me. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, iHeartRadio, and Radio Public, among others. So, subscribe today on your favorite podcast service and tell all your friends. On today's program, join Mary Ellen Keeley, Virginia Child Support, as she hosts Taylor Ash, Policy Program Consultant for the Virginia Child Support Program, to discuss his January NCSQ article Behavioral Economics and attracting customers to the 40 program. Taylor explains how, with the help of his colleagues on the NCA Research Subcommittee, they wrote this article based on Richard Thaler's book, Nudge, and the concepts included there. Some of the topics they chatted about were default options, being nice, and how it all relates to the way we interact with our customers. Taylor provides some tools for centering our services on the needs of the families we serve. It's going to be a great show, so stick around, and we'll be right back.
1: another episode of NCIA On Location, coming to you this week from North Carolina and Virginia. Today, we're pleased to have a guest who is no stranger to most of our listeners. He is Taylor Ash, and I'm fortunate to work with him here at Virginia Child Support. I'm Mary Ellen Keeley in Crozet, Virginia. Taylor, will you introduce yourself?
2: Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much, Maryland. So, yes, I'm, I'm Taylor Ash. I am a policy program consultant um, within the Virginia Division of Child Support Enforcement. Um, I work on the program initiatives team, um, which primarily stays in the realm of grants and legislation. Although I will say that what I'm doing mostly these days is uh, managing the SAVES grant, which is the um, federal demonstration grant that is focused on improving safety measures for individuals in the child support who have, uh, or sorry, Yeah. (laughs) Improving safety measures for individuals in the child support system who have experienced domestic violence. Um, This is actually my first role within child support. I started with Virginia um, in February of 2021. So I still I I make this joke all the time, but it still holds true. I am learning the acronyms every day because there are so many and uh, always. And I would say. uh, and an interesting fact I w- think is is worth mentioning here is that what got me interested in child support is actually Mary Ellen hosting a podcast. I was um, d- researching jobs uh, right after getting my master's degree and found the team in Virginia. They had that position posted and was looking to see what they had accomplished and found that Mary Ellen, you were running a, uh, a a podcast called Support VA Kids, and that was and I listened to all the episodes that you had posted. And I thought if a team is putting out a podcast that is this cool, then I want to join them. So that's how I ended up in child support.
1: Now, I just want to be clear to the NCO listeners. I did not prompt him or pay him to um, support my podcast during this podcast, Um, but should you want to listen to it, it is on all of your spot, your uh, podcast platform platforms, support VA kids. Okay. Um, So, Taylor, you wrote an article for the January CSQ. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It it was actually the end result of a um, a, a work group within the research subcommittee of uh, NCCA. Uh, We were specifically tasked with um, looking into the question of how do we attract customers to the 4D program, and I worked with a wonderful team of individuals, and they we ended up um, collecting sort of a, a longer article, and it was split into two separate pieces, and so the article that was posted was the second half of the article, which is pre- predominantly written by me, but I, I, I think I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the other folks that were involved uh, in the authorship of that article. I want to specifically highlight Emily Gregg uh, and Elaine Sorensen for their help in the in my piece that I, I were calling my piece, but I would say it was a collaborative piece. But within the research group, um, Corinne Flores. Tunisia Jackson, uh, and then also um, Daniela Wagner and Sharon Pizzuti were also part of that work and, uh, work group, and so it was uh, um, a very collaborative effort where people were bringing in topics and, and research and threads. And so um, I, I definitely want to be uh, upfront in that it was a it was a, a team effort, but that they made the decision to to credit me as sole author, which I really appreciate for.
1: Excellent. Well, we will. I will do my best to see how many of those people I can make sure are also credited in the show notes. So one topic that stood out to me um, was about default options. Um, Can you explain that a little further for our listeners?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think when we talk about behavioral economics, it sounds maybe kind of uh elite or erudite in some ways but um really at its at its core we're just sort of looking at the way that humans make decisions um and and studying how they make decisions in different contexts and trying to build situations in which humans can make decisions that op uh, either is optimum for their health or their benefit and well-being and so Default options is is actually kind of one of the the, the funny things. Just as a human, we tend to take whatever is the default option given to us in two choices. If there's if there's like uh, a radio button uh, and one is already highlighted and you can pick the other option as humans, we tend to assume that the highlighted option uh, is sort of suggested it maybe is the best option. Uh, And so default options can be really powerful because you can suggest right from the get-go, what is maybe in a person's best interest? Um, I also just, I'll, I'll put this over here on the side, because I, I, we'll, we'll talk about this maybe later in, in the conversation. I'm I'm using the term in a person's best interest, you know, for, for, for a person's uh, optimum health or well-being. That may be a controversial statement, and we we can get to that. But um, so I, I we're going to, I'll have, I'll proceed forward just with that in mind, that that we'll have to talk about that in a moment. But in this instance, uh, one of the examples that's actually given in nudge was a retirement plan. So this uh, particular firm had a really poor uh, enrollment in uh, the retirement plan for their employees, and they really wanted to increase enrollment and so what they did was they actually set it up to where as you're going through your onboarding process um, that it would be defaulted that you would be enrolled and then you could opt out later um you can sometimes hear different um you can hear different terms used for the for this idea of default option like uh an opt an opt out framework instead of an opt-in framework Uh, and those can be really powerful because again you're getting somebody enrolled in retirement you know helping them plan for their future right off the bat instead of making them think that the recommended option is no don't do this this is optional or something along those lines so so yeah default options can be really powerful in that in that regard
1: that makes sense it makes me want to read a little bit more of the book um okay i'll get to that in a little bit so um the article talks a great deal about customer service um how does that apply to how we interact specifically with our child support customers
2: Oh, gosh, this is, um, I'm, I'm really glad that you're asking this. I, I think that this is at the core, really, of of what we're doing. And I think this this is something that we're all talking about. And it's at least finding threads in the way that the feds are reimagining the way that they position themselves, right? It is no longer the Office of Child Support Enforcement. It is the Office of Child Support Services, um, even uh, in CCA, right? We're talking about the the way that we re the the names and and the terms that we use in this space and if we're talking about services if we're talking about engagement um if we're talking about those kinds of spaces that's service and that that is inherently customer service and and focused on the human element specifically and so if we're going to be if we're going to be engaging with people uh, even in a a collections type scenario because that is our underlying sort of driver for for the for the existence of our program we still have to acknowledge the human on the other end of the line and so it is it is so important that to increase positive interactions with our agency and to improve the perception of our agency we have to Think about and use empathy and compassion and think about the other person in their line so that when people are talking to their friends or their family about their interaction, they're like, actually, you know, I had a really wonderful conversation with the person uh, that I talked about. And that might change, you know, the whole, to be frank, uh, that we have dug ourselves into. Um, You know, we're working from a historical deficit, unfortunately, in this space. And so there's a lot of work to be done here. Um, And if we're going to bring people into trusting an institution when historically institution, institutional trust is at an all-time low. It has to start from kindness. It has to start from from being able to uh, meet people where they're at and and see them as, as humans first and think about how to we can improve their lives.
1: So that leads me straight into the next question. Maybe you've read them ahead of time. Um, if you had complete autonomy, Uh, What would you change about the way we deliver child support services? This can be Virginia-specific or or broader.
2: Well, (laughs) this is, uh, yeah, I really appreciate um, this question. Also, uh, it's, and it's tough (laughs) because there's so, Um, I want to say there's there's so much good that we do, but at the same time, there's so much that we're working to undo, I think, in a lot of ways. And so if I if I had complete autonomy, (laughs) this might get a little bit um, radical to some regard, but I would. Can I ask can I ask a follow up question when you say deliver child support services? I see. Um, you know, you had, you had, you you had said online and that was kind of in my brain. Did you mean just writ large or are we talking online specifically?
1: Whatever is on your heart, either one.
2: <laughs> That's great. Cause I don't think you can necessarily, uh, you know, separate the two, but I think that child support in and of itself should be centered on the needs of the individual And so I think that inherently the services offered by child support should strive for creating self-sufficiency and well-being within the families that we serve. So that might mean things like employment services, connection to mental health services, um, connection to substance use and recovery programs. Um, You know, obviously, I'm very particularly passionate about safety responses and protocols that are in place for individuals who are experiencing um, family violence, domestic violence, intimate partner violence. And inherently within that means we stop valuing collections and we start valuing the outcomes of the family on a a long-term trajectory. Are these families moving away from positions where they need to be in spaces of government assistance and in places where they are feeling fulfilled and happy with their life trajectory those are hard things to measure right it is those are hard things to put on on uh you know your evaluation forms when you're reporting your um, metrics to either the feds or who the feds are asking about and so and so i think that that inherently influences your online interactions right in the sense that these are very simple and very human driven interactions. Um, I think a really good example here, and I I will cite this book is, and I think everybody should read it, is is Recoding America. Um, Really ensuring that you have digital services that reflect actual humans and their needs um, by ensuring that you have user testing, right? I I think user testing for some reason is a, um, is a, Controversial topic. And I know that a lot of it relates to IRB, a lot of it relates to being able to conduct, you know, quote unquote research on the public. But I think that asking the public to participate in Spaces where we can really figure out what's the kind of online interaction that they want to have would be very eye opening for us. I think it would monumentally change the way that government websites <laughs> exist as a whole. Um, but then I think that um, it might just change the, the way that um, we engage with our customers very specifically. Um, and I will also add uh, I think that we would also be shocked how many people would love to maybe drop some of the online components. I would love to to talk to a person. Um, but I also um that's also, yeah, I understand that that, that is also controversial. Uh and, and I don't want to be this, you know, kids these days on their computer <laughs> person shouting from the yard, but that's that's also my opinion.
1: So one of the other concepts in the article that I I want you to try to explain a little bit better to our listeners and and it was about um being nice. And so I'm going to phrase the question this way. Um, If you had two minutes, like an elevator speech, to explain the be nice concept to staff, what would you say? Um, And I'll give descriptors there. It can be not any particular staff audience. You can determine what that, that audience is before you tell us what the speech is.
2: Thank you for that descriptor. <laughs> I really appreciate your you're maybe throwing me um throwing me a bone there especially with the way that that article I think is is pointing because I think what we're talking about here is is a systemic change in the way that we view our services. So my 2-minute spiel would be not to the frontline staff. It because they are also Recipients in some ways of people who also need to have uh, compassion directed towards them, but it would be towards our executive leadership and inherently within that, I mean, the federal program in and of itself. When we prioritize the collection of money over the well-being of individuals, it inherently reduces every interaction to a transactional exchange between to non-human acting entities, in a sense. It ch- it takes us away from people that have emotions and stories and experiences, and it boils it down to you are a number in the sense of your bank account, in the sense of your child support obligation, in the sense of how many days you've been in contempt. Those are the numbers that we start to attach to an individual as opposed to, again, a person with a story, a person with a history, a person with a family. And until we center those things first and start to really, again, imagine what it would be like to value someone in their individual experience and put their family on a trajectory of fulfillment – it's going to shortchange everything because I can stand in front of staff all day and be like, you, you, you gotta just be nice. And I know you want people to be nice to you too. And they'll be like, so I, I have to make X amount of calls today. My caseload's, you know, 1200 people. How am I supposed to, how am I supposed to be nice to every single person that walks through the door? I've got a lot of door uh, days where I have a difficulty just being nice to the two people that I interact with in, you know, in my day-to-day life. You know, if I'm going to pick up a prescription at the pharmacy and maybe, you know, Know, go through the drive-through and so i think that it's really important that we have to highlight that these the 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 foundation of our relationship from the very beginning it's already it's already colored with money it's already colored with numbers and so un, until that changes all the way at the top then i i think that unfortunately we're, we're fighting an uphill battle but I would say that that can start from the bottom too. Right? It can start from a child support agency saying, "Yeah, we're going to meet the federal metrics. We're going we're going to track all those things, but also, we're really going to prioritize this specific component by bringing in innovative ways to serve families and meet their needs beyond just the child support obligation in and of itself." Um, and then if the feds see enough of that, then they can be like, "Oh, you know, maybe this is um this is something that we should start prioritizing it into a high level. And this isn't me trying to call, <laughs> call the federal program out by any means. Um, and they've got my email. They can, <laughs> and, and then my work phone, you know, hit me up anytime. But I think that, um, I think that there is, and I do think that there's signs of this, of this happening. But yeah, I think my two minutes feel would be really talking about drop the numbers and, and let's just talk about people.
1: I think there are lots of folks in the program that that would agree with you. Um, but, Feds, if you are looking for someone, it's Taylor Ash at dss.virginia.gov. Um, okay, so was there anything you edited out of your article that you want to make sure our audience knows about?
2: Yeah, th- thank you. And this was kind of what I mentioned earlier, that the thing that I wanted to circle back on when I was talking about this idea of what, you know, in someone's best interest in, you know, to maximize health and well-being and why I said that that's a controversial statement. Because it is assuming that I know what is best for another person, unless I have met them and unless I have talked to them and have these conversations and asked them, what do they want? What is it that, that I can help you achieve? Any sort of me spinning ideas out and and putting them onto a form is me asserting a very specific power relationship into that dynamic, right? It is me saying I know what's good for you in this space. It is this one. Uh, this is your. This, this is you. How to max. This is how you maximize your health and well-being. And then that is the history that we have with government, specifically excluding and marginalizing and oppressing various cultures and ethnic groups within this country. And so we have to be really careful when we start using these terms, right? Like in your best interest, uh, there is an ethical component to behavioral economics that I think, and I think they do a good job of touching on this in the book. I would love to have seen maybe a little bit more more on it just because maybe I'm a little bit extra cautious of this. But when we're talking about the ethics of, of these strategies, these strategies can be used to and are being used to direct us to do things that maybe aren't always in our best interests. you know, advertisers are really, really interested in the way that the human mind works and the way that we can sort of, um, short circuit our ability to make our best decisions. And so the reason why I am such a proponent of this idea within public service and within government agencies and, and specifically within, you know, the 4d program it's because I do think that this agency, at its core, even though I did just call out the feds for <laughs> for for driving us into a relationships that maybe aren't the most wholesome, um, I do think at its core, people want to help people in this space. And so when we're engaging in behavioral economics, it's really important to ensure that that is always at the center, that these strategies, these skills, this science is being applied um, with the needs of people in mind, and that those people have the opportunity to share their needs. We cannot assume what people's needs are. We cannot assume what it is that would be their ideal scenario. It's something we have to hear from them very specifically, whether that be, you know, a specific population you're working with, you know, if we're talking NCPs, or, and, you know, currently, or with saves, talking about survivors we have to hear from them first before we can really you know engage in this space um and there are there are a lot of are a lot of examples of this going very poorly uh uh both in the history of uh government and but also predominantly in in the private uh, private sector and so it is with a great Disclaimer of caution <laughs> that I that I say definitely research behavioral economics, find out ways that you can use it to make your program more efficient. Um, but at the same time, just always ensure that the needs that you're prioritizing and centering are those of the people that you serve.
1: Oh, and I'll add another uh, shameless plug for my own things, um, and that is I am pretty confident that there's going to be a session at Eureka in April in Grand Rapids about behavior economics and how it could affect your caseload numbers. Um, so might be something you want to be on the lookout for. So Taylor, now that you've finished reading Nudge, um, what's next? What's What are you reading?
2: Oof, that's a good question. <laughs> Um, I'm always reading a few books, Um, uh, you know, right now uh, I've taken a break from nonfiction. Uh, I just finished up a, a big long run of a big long run of nonfiction uh, nudge and thinking fast and slow. We're both, we're both part of that. Um, but now it's really been nice to come back to the fiction world. And I think I'll just plug one author in particular. Um, I've been reading a lot of George Saunders lately. Um, George Saunders is a phenomenal short story writer. Um, irreverent, um, but also maybe one of the most brilliant and, loving voices in America i think his um i think his critique of society but his also his ability to highlight the beauty of the most flawed humans uh, and all of us are flawed in so many ways is in, is incredible. Um, uh, Lincoln and the Bardo, I think was his novel that got the most uh, attention um, just a few years ago. It was on Obama's uh, Obama's list. Uh, and it won, I want to say it won the man booker, but it may have won a different fiction prize. I could be wrong there. Um, but yes, um, Lincoln and the Bardo is a great place to start. It's being turned into an opera, which is amazing. Um, yeah. Reading a lot of George Saunders, he has a lot to work through. So,
1: very cool. I always like to ask just because I, I want to fill up my own Goodreads app of what I'm going to read next. Um, so on behalf of the podcast team, I want to thank you for joining us today for another episode of N.C.A. On Location. Uh, we also want to thank you, Taylor, for all that you do in the child support program. Uh, thank you to our listeners for joining us. I'm Mary Ellen Keeley, and this has been N.C.A. On Location.
0: On Location is available on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. We have a lot of great episodes on the way, so be sure to subscribe and listen to all of our previous episodes as well. We also appreciate your readings, your feedback, your comments, and your suggestions. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please reach out to us on the contact link on our website. On Location is a production of the N.C.A. Communications Committee with special production assistance from Joe Mamlin and me. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Tim Leitner, and this is Ben On Location.